Well, let's open up in a time of prayer, and I got to say, what a perfect hymn to begin the morning with, because as we talk about the sacrifice that Christ has paid, uh, today we'll be talking about that biblically, uh, reminding ourselves what, what he did for his bride, the church, and then as husbands, uh, how that is to be our example in our marriages. But let's pray together. God, you are so good and faithful. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ to pay it all, to pay the debt that we owed, to die the death that we deserved, to spill his atoning blood for our sins, Lord, so that by his stripes we might be healed. We praise you, Jesus. He who knew no sin has become sin for us, so we might become your righteousness for your glory. Lord, I praise you for these men, these brothers in Christ, this church family. And I just want to lift up our time together on this Saturday, that this would be a day where we seek you and find you, where we draw near to you, and where you remind us, Lord Jesus, from your word of what you've called us to do and to be as husbands, as fathers, as grandfathers, as men. And then we pray that you, Lord Jesus, would give us the strength to obey. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, thank you all so much for being back this morning. I know we had a late night last night and an early morning this morning, but you can sleep later, right? But you're here, great breakfast and coffee. You might need some more coffee throughout the morning. Uh, But last night, you know, the hope and the prayer for last night was to kind of prepare our hearts Instead of us just rushing in and talking about how we can serve our wives and children, let's stop and say, where are our hearts at? Let's repent of our sin. Let's renew our minds. Let's rest in the Lord. Let's allow Jesus to prepare our hearts so that now we're in a position where we can receive today's message, where we can hear about our roles as husbands and fathers and grandfathers, and that's what we're going to be talking about throughout the morning. Raise your hand if you're married. Any of y'all married? Raise your hand if you've been married for less than a year. Less than a year. How long have you been married? Two months. Two months. Give him a hand. That's great. Anybody been married for five years, at least five years? All right, keep it up. At least 10 years. 15. I'm 15. 20? 25? 30? Oh, we're getting it now. 35? 40? 40 years, 45 years. All right, how many years have you been married, brother? 47? 40, y'all tie? Is that the most? Give him a hand. Oh, no, we got one. How many? He wins, give him it. 51, you get an extra biscuit. 51 years. I feel like you should come up and tell us some stories how many of y'all, when you got married, before you got married, you sat down with your father-in-law and asked him for his blessing? Anybody do that? Raise your hand. I did that. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever done. I, I told you last night that I had been a missionary in the jungle, and it's a longer story. I'll tell you sometime, but 
I had known my wife for a while. She had kind of put me in the friend zone. But as God was bringing me home from Peru, he started opening that door, and he's uh, connecting us. And so it, was, it happened very quickly after that. So I got home on a Wednesday. We had our first date on Saturday. And a few months later, I'm sitting in her dad's living room about to ask for his blessing. And uh, we, we got married quick. It went real quick after that. But I got back from the jungle, had hair down to my shoulders, like I told you last night, the caterpillar with yellow puffy hair. I didn't really have a job at the time. I was doing like substitute teaching and speaking at churches on Sundays because I just got back from doing IMB missions. Now, I will say about a week after I asked my father-in-law for his blessing, a church hired me as a youth pastor. But technically, the night I'm at his house, I didn't really have a job. So we sit down. We had this little steak dinner that he had grilled. It's me, him, and his wife. And then afterwards, he goes, all right, let's go to the living room. He knew why I was, I was there. And he, I think he was messing with me, just kind of dragging it out. So we sit down, and I asked him, you know, hey, can I marry your daughter? I'd, I'd love to have your blessing. And he asked me two questions. First question was, what's going to be your job? And I said, you know, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to get one. It's going to be a good one. It'll be a ministry, so we'll probably be poor, but, you know, I'll get a good job. And he said, okay, okay. Then he said, now, I know you've been improved for the last two years doing missions. His daughter had just spent some time in South Africa doing missions. And he goes, I keep hearing y'all talking about missions and Africa. And he just looked at me and he said, are you going to take my daughter to Africa? And I'm like sweating. I was like, oh, my goodness. I thought you were just going to say yes. And I looked at him. And at first I said, look, your, your daughter's passionate about missions you know, apart from me, and so even if we don't get married, she's probably going to be doing missions her whole life, and, uh, but then I said, but yeah, you know, if God tells us to go to Africa, we'll go to Africa, and here's what I told him. I said, listen, Jack, here's three things I'll promise you, and I was so young, and I, I don't think I knew anything, but I looked at him, and I said, here's the three things I'll promise you. I said, I promise I always will love your daughter. I promise I'll never leave your daughter, and I promise I'll do everything I can to make sure that as a family, we always follow God's will. He just looked at me for the longest pause in history of pauses. And then he stood up and said, all right, you have my blessing. Shook my head. I, 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 I think I uh, sweated a little bit more, left. A couple days later, proposed. She said yes. I wasn't even nervous about that. You know, once you get through the father-in-law, the rest is pretty easy. But as I'm saying these three promises you know, I, I honestly think it's probably a good thing to say now that I'm a father of a daughter. I think if some young man says those three things to me one day, I'll be like, oh, that sounds pretty good. But I had no idea what I was saying, no idea what I was committing to or promising, no idea how hard keeping those promises would ever be. And then you actually get married, and I think most of us who've been married for a little bit of time, even maybe a few months, definitely 51 years, we know that to keep those kind of promises we can't do it by ourselves. It's only in the power of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we could ever love our wives well, lead our wives well, lead our families to follow the leading and will of God. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. And so what I have learned since then is that if we are to be faithful husbands, if we are to lead our families well, if we are to lead our wives well, if we are to see that our families are following God's will, we must be absolutely all the time completely dependent upon Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And I share that with you today because as we talk about shepherding our wives, I want us to just remember that, yes, this is a calling from God. And I want us to commit to this fully. And for those who have already committed this, maybe this will be a morning of just renewal of the vow, so to speak. But as we commit to this, let us understand that we are dependent upon the Lord for this. And it's the days that we try to do these things on our own strength that we will fail and fail hard. But the days that we wake up, we rest in the Lord, we depend upon him, we go to him, I believe we'll find everything we need to be the husbands that God has called us to be. I believe there's probably some men here this morning that if you were to be honest, you say, honestly, Jonathan, I think this has been a sweet season for our marriage. I'm running the race well. I'm leading my wife, depending upon the Lord. And for you, I'm hoping that this will just be like adding another log to the fire. Last night, as we were sitting out there by the fire, I was watching the fire. And as the night went on, it kind of started to die down a little bit. But the flame was still there. But I know that if we were to throw a few more logs on it, that flame would ignite more. And so some of y'all, you have this fire to be this godly shepherd in your home and in your marriage, and that fire is in your heart and it's already burning, but maybe this morning we can throw a few more logs on the fire and ignite it again, renew that passion. But I also imagine that in this room with this many men, there's probably some men here that, if you were to be honest, you say, Jonathan, actually this has not been a great season in our marriage, me as a husband. Maybe it hasn't been necessarily just bad, but maybe you've just been on cruise control, going through the motions. And maybe for you, this is the time that God's going to call you back to some of these biblical truths to remind us, what does it mean to be a shepherd in the home, to be a husband who shepherds his wife? If you have your Bibles, I want to look at a passage this morning with you in Ephesians chapter 5. There's a quote from the reformer Martin Luther back in the 1500s. Martin Luther said, there is no more lovely friendly or charming relationship, communion or company than a good marriage. If we can pursue the godly marriage that the Lord has for us, I'm telling you, it will be the greatest blessing of our lives. There is no more lovely, friendly, or charming relationship, communion or company than a good marriage. Let's look at Ephesians 5, and, and you know, Blair and I were talking about Ephesians this morning in his office. You know, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, and we read about Ephesians and the city of Ephesus in Acts, and of course this letter, we read about it in Revelation. And the way these six chapters are broken down, the first two chapters are kind of all in on all relationship with Jesus. Chapter 1 is about all the blessings we have in Jesus Christ as believers. Chapter 2 reminds us of who we were outside of Christ and who we are in Christ and that we are saved by grace through faith. And chapters 3 and 4 kind of focus on our relationship with the church family. And then chapters 5 and 6 starts to focus on our relationship with our family in the home. And this is where we're picking up in this letter where Paul is writing about what's going on in the home. He's going to address the wives, then the husbands, then the children, and then the fathers. So let's look at verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now some of you are like, Jonathan, just stop there. We'll call it a day. That's good. 
I'm, I'm with you. I highlighted that. I circled it, underlined it. I already texted it to my wife this morning. Please don't do that. And here's the thing, though. That, that seems very countercultural today because of the fem- feminist movement. And, and in America, this would just seem very countercultural to call wives to submit to your husbands. But when Paul wrote this, it was also very countercultural, but for a different reason. Because when Paul was writing this, no one else was addressing women at all. They wouldn't have addressed the wives. They would have ignored the wives. They would have belittled the wives. Jewish men, religious men back at this day and age would pray prayers. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Don't start praying that prayer. But that's what they, so when Paul starts to acknowledge the wives and address the wives in this gracious way, that would have been countercultural. This is a sweet act of grace to understand that the women are part of the church, that the wives are also who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they have a role to play in the church. They have a role to play in the family, and he calls them to celebrate and to delight in the spiritual leadership of their husbands. And here's what I've learned in, in 20 years of ministry. Christian women who have Christian husbands leading them well almost never, almost never have a problem submitting to their husbands. I'm not going to say never. I'll say almost never. Most Christian women I sit with, most Christian wives I sit with, if their husbands would lead them well, like we're about to talk about, they would delight in that. They would love that. They would enjoy that. They would celebrate that. I think the reason so many uh, times the church today has a problem with verse 21, or I mean 22 and 23, is because a lot of husbands aren't leading well. We usually have one of two extremes. We have the husbands that are apathetic, lazy, they've checked out completely. And then we have the husbands that are domineering. They think leading means being the CEO of the home, the boss of the home, telling everybody else what to do. And I think, yes, if that's your example, uh, then as a wife, you probably struggle with submitting to that. But I tell you, men, if we can get this next part right, I think it's going to bless our wives in ways we can never even imagine. So let's look at the words to the husbands. Wives get two verses. Husbands get a lot more verses. And if you think it's hard for a wife to read, submit to your husbands, trust me, men, our calling seems a little bit harder. Look at verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now, if he stops there, we probably all just nod our heads and say, yeah, I love my wife. That's easy. But he doesn't stop there. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, if we stopped there, that would be challenging because we'd say, okay, you're not talking about this worldly love, this romantic comedy movie type love, this Hallmark love. You're talking about some sort of godly love. And my example is Christ and the church. Oh, that's a high calling. But he doesn't even stop there. He wants to make sure that when he says, as Christ loved the church, we understand how Christ demonstrated his love. So look at the next phrase, and gave himself up for her. So our example is Jesus on the cross. He says, husbands, love your wives like that. When you think about how you're supposed to love your wives, you think about the cross. Love your wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Tony Marita says that this kind of love here is sacrificial love, sanctifying love, and satisfying love. It's sacrificial, sanctifying, and satisfying. It's sacrificial. If your love for your wife costs you nothing, then we're missing this kind of love. Leading our wives starts with us sacrificing ourselves. Leading our wives, shepherding our wives doesn't mean that we demand our rights, that we demand that they serve us. To me, the only leader worth his salt, whether you're talking about at a church, at a home, at a work, the only leader worth his salt is a servant leader. Show me a servant leader, and I'll show you a leader who who I, I would follow. But the leader that sits back in his chair, barking out orders, bossing people around, demanding his rights, and the other servant, that's, that's a domineering tyrant. And that's not what this is calling us to as, as husbands. We're called to a sacrificial love where we die to ourselves, lay down our rights, sacrifice ourselves for our wives, and, and serve them as we're leading them for their sanctification, for our sanctification. This is a call for husbands to serve, lead, and sacrifice for their wives. So I want to focus on the idea of leading our wives and shepherding our wives. And in your notes, there's three L's that we're going to look at. One of the greatest preachers from the fourth century said that every house should be a church and every head of a family a spiritual shepherd. So let's talk about how to shepherd our wives. Look at this passage. The three things we put in your notes there is that we should listen to their heart, lead her spiritually, and love her sacrificially. One author says the spiritual leadership is knowing where God wants people to be and then taking the initiative to use God's methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. So if we're to shepherd our wives, it starts with just listening to their hearts and knowing them. Do you know your wife's heart? Do we listen to them? James said that we should be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Would your wife say that you know her her needs, her fears, her desires, her prayers? When's the last time you asked her, what have you been reading the Bible? When's the last time you asked her, what have you been praying for? How can I pray for you? Are we listening to our wives' hearts? Because if we're going to shepherd them, we have to know them. We have to know their hearts. You know, going from culture to culture, you'll find a lot of different ways that husbands and wives uh, get engaged, a lot of different ways they get married, a lot of different ways they celebrate their wedding. I've been at weddings where they dance down the aisle. I've been at weddings where the husband's family has to give presents to the bride's family before they'll even bring the bride out. I've been at wedding receptions where the groomsmen kidnap the bride and they don't bring her back until they raise a certain amount of money as ransom and then they bring her back and they give the money to the uh, groom and the bride. I had a buddy, he was a missionary in the jungle as well, in the Amazon jungle, but with a different people group, the Ashinica tribe. And he stayed in this one village most of the time. And every morning, he had got real close to this one family. And so every morning, that family would send their son to his hut across on the other side of the village. And the son would bring him a papaya. And the next morning, the son would bring him some bananas. And the next morning, the son would bring him, you know, a little fish. And he just would always bless him that way. And so that family kind of looked out for this missionary. And so every morning, they'd send his son, he'd bring him fruit. 
Well, one morning, this missionary wakes up, and instead of the son being there, it, it was the daughter from the family, and she brought a papaya. He, he didn't think much of it. Well, then about an hour later, she came back, and she brought some bananas. And he thought, that's kind of weird, too, in one day, and they're sending their daughter twice. And then a few hours later, she came back with some more food. A few hours after that, she came back. And, and around the fifth time that she came and set some food down in his hut, he started thinking, this is interesting, a little strange. I got to check this out. So he walks across the village to her dad's hut, and, and he says, hey, thanks for all the fruit. That's been really nice, but, you know, wh- why are you sending so much? And is your son okay? Because I noticed your daughter's coming today. And he said, no. He said, listen, we, we love you. We love you like a son. We're so glad that God has sent you to our village, and, and we'd be so honored if you would just marry our daughter. We're giving her to you. And since you accepted the fruit, you are now engaged to our daughter. And we are so happy that you've accepted this offer and this proposal. And we've already been telling other people in the village that y'all are engaged. And they're super excited for y'all's wedding. And he's panicking. He's like, I'm going to be fired from the IMB. What in the world is happening? I just ate a papaya. Now this is happening. And so, you know, he graciously bowed out of that and somehow got out of that. They did not get married, uh, thankfully. And uh, he, he got on the next boat and got out of town for a little bit. Uh, to go tell his boss what had happened. But every culture is different on how they do these engagements and weddings. But what I have seen is no matter where you go in the world, the wives always are desiring that their husbands would pay attention to them, would listen to them, would hear their heart, would know them well. And if we're going to sacrifice ourselves for our wives, part of that means not being too into our own agenda, our own schedule, to actually ever hear them. When was the last time you made time just to sit down and hear your wife? Maybe sacrificing ourselves for them starts with that, just sacrificing time to sit down and hear the hearts of our wives. When was the last time she told you what was going on and instead of trying to fix it, you just listened? That's one thing I've learned the hard way is they don't want you to fix it. They don't want advice. They don't want a plan. They just want you to listen and maybe pray over them. Sacrificing and shepherding our wives starts with listening to our wives. The next thing we see in our notes there is we are to lead her spiritually. To lead her spiritually. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There's a spiritual aspect to what Christ has done for the church. He doesn't just die on the cross for their sins so they can be forgiven. There's also this sanctification, this transformation. We're not just justified, but we're sanctified. We're glorified one day. This is a picture we have here that as husbands, we should be passionately praying for the sanctification of our wives. We should allow the Lord to use us to shepherd them in such a way that they are washed with the word of God. I remember when Jess and I first got married, I was, uh, after I served as a youth pastor, I was actually pastoring a small church in Fort Worth, and it was a small church, I'm talking, you know, 50, 60 people, and the thing about that size church is, you know, they expect you to kind of be with everybody all the time, but you also will have the chance to maybe be with everybody all the time, and so I would. I was meeting with men every single day, discipling them in the morning, afternoon, evening, and one night I came home from some coffee shop after discipling one of the men in our church, and I thought I was being pretty faithful at the house. I was praying with my wife every morning, praying with her every night, but when I came home and I was telling her about that discipleship thing and us opening the Word of God and talking about the Word of God together, she looked at me and she said, I wish we could do that together. 
oh, man, that hit me. I was like, oh. Oh, you're right. You know, I mean, she's hearing all these stories about me and these other men opening up the word of God and talking about it. And even though she and I were praying together, we weren't diving into the word. We weren't really enjoying that kind of devotion and discipleship and worship together. If we're going to shepherd our wives, we have to lead them spiritually. Would your wife say that you have been one of the people that God has used in her discipleship? Are you more likely to open up the word of God with a brother in Christ than your wife? When was the last time you and your wife opened up the word? When was the last time you read what you had heard in that podcast to your wife or what you had read in your devotion? You shared that with your wife. Are you teaching the scriptures to your wife? Throughout church history, there was this understanding we are looking at Origen or Clement or John Chrysostom or St. Augustine or Martin Luther or John Calvin or Zwingli or the Puritans, John Owen and Richard Baxter and John Bunyan. There was this understanding, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, throughout church history, there's been understanding that the husbands should be like pastors in their homes. Did you know that your home is to have a pastor living in it 24-7 and it's to be you? Do you see yourself in that light? Do your wife and your children should say, yeah, I got Pastor Tom and I got Pastor Blair and praise God. But did you know at home I got Pastor Dad? I got Pastor Husband. He's shepherding me. He's praying over me. He's washing me with the word for my sanctification. He's discipling me. He's encouraging me in the scriptures. I think a lot of times when husbands first get married, Christian husbands, Christian men, they do have this idea that they're going to lead. But most of us, we've never done it before, and most of us, within the first year, we kind of blow it a little bit, and, and we mess up. And a lot of times what happens, it's kind of like in, in a car, if the husband's driving, the wife is in the front seat, and the husband makes the wrong turn pretty early on, and the wife says, you made a wrong turn, why don't you just let me drive? And the husband says, you're right, I don't know where I'm going, I'll let you drive. And he gets in the back seat, she gets in the driver's seat, and she starts driving, and 10 years down the road, she comes to the pastor's office and says, I've been leading for 10 years, I'm exhausted. And he says, yeah, but that first year, you told me to get in the back seat, and you took over. She's like, yeah, but you let me, and they're fighting about it because neither one of them are happy. I think a lot of times we get this wrong early in marriage, and we never find our way back into that role as shepherd. And I'm telling you, this could be your weekend to get back into that role as shepherd. If you feel like you've kind of lost that way, maybe your wife has kind of taken over the lead. Maybe she's the one most likely to have her Bible open, most likely to disciple the kids. She's the main reason y'all are even kind of in church to begin with. If you've been seeing, maybe she's kind of the spiritual leader of the home. This could be your weekend to step back into that role. And it starts with just being honest with your wife and saying, listen, I believe God's called me to lead. I haven't been doing it well. But I want you to know that I have a renewed commitment to shepherd our family. And I'd love to start by you and I opening up the Bible together a couple times a week and me reading the word of God to our family and praying over us. We're to lead her spiritually. In 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about our prayer lives with our wives. He talks about living with our wives in an understanding way so that our prayers are not hindered. And uh, Charles Spurgeon, Donald Whitney, they both look at that passage and say, I believe Peter's talking about our prayer life with our wife, those joint prayers, those shared prayers together, right? 
And what's interesting is if that's what he's talking about, it looks like how we treat our wives actually affects our prayer lives. If we're to lead our wives spiritually, we have to understand that being faithful in that actually blesses our relationship with God. Our, our spiritual life with our wives, our shepherding of our wives spiritually actually blesses our own walk with the Lord. Here's another way of saying this. Guys, if you think you and the Lord are on fire right now, but you never talk about God to your wife, you never pray with your wife, there's a problem. This affects that relationship with God. How we are leading our wives actually affects our relationship with the Lord. It says that our prayers can even be hindered based on how we're treating our wives. We are to lead her spiritually. Here's some practical ways to lead your wife spiritually. One, open up the word of God with your wife. Have the word of God on the kitchen table. Have the word of God on the coffee table. I had one buddy to keep the Bible next to the remote control, and his rule in his house was we don't pick up the remote control if we haven't yet picked up the Bible. That's a good rule. Another way to lead your wife spiritually is to pray with and for your wife. Here's the thing, guys. If you're part of this church, here's one thing I know for sure. You have pastors at this church who pray for your wives. If they pray for your wife more than you do, I think that's a problem. Nobody should be praying for your wife more than you. You should be the greatest prayer warrior she'll ever have her whole life. You should be praying for her, praying with her. When right now, think through your schedule, when could you begin praying with your wife? Could you pray in the mornings? Could you pray in the evenings? Right before bed? Could you just ask her, hey, how can I pray for you? And then just actually pray over her. Another way to start leading your wife spiritually is just to get praise music in the home. We'll talk later this afternoon about family worship, and most people who write about family worship today will say that the three elements of family worship are to read the Bible, pray, and then sing praises. And I know some of you might be saying, but I don't play the piano, I don't play guitar, I don't sing well, but we'll find a way to get worship music in the home. I got a buddy, he told me, he said, listen, I want to worship with my wife and children, but we have no time. I said, well, tell me, you know, what you got going on. And he was super busy. He was. He had two jobs, worked 80 hours a week. His wife had a job. She worked 60 hours a week. They were a busy family. Their kids were involved in a million things. So finally I said, let's sit down. I want you to start with Sunday morning and walk me through your entire schedule of the whole week. And it took us forever. I was like, man, you could have been leading your wife right now. We've had time to do this. And he's going through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he was. He was busy. They were hardly ever both at the house at the same time. He'd get home from work. She'd go to work. She'd get home from work. He'd go take the kids somewhere. I mean, it was a busy, busy family. But he got to Saturday morning. And he goes, and then Saturday morning, you know, I get up, I make them breakfast, and then we eat, and then, you know, we're off running. I said, whoa, 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 tell me about the Saturday morning. He said, well, you know, Saturday morning we don't really have anything, so I get up early, and I make breakfast, and then the kids kind of come in, then my wife comes in, and we sit down and make breakfast. I said, right there. How could you bring the word of God and prayer and worship music into the home right there? And so we started talking, and he started thinking of ideas, and so he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'll get up early on Saturday morning, I'll read my Bible, have my devotion. Then I'll go in the kitchen, I'm going to put on some worship music in the kitchen, start making breakfast, but I'm going to put the kids' Bibles out on the table. As the kids come in, I'm going to encourage them to do their devotion while I'm making breakfast, and we've got worship music going. Then my wife's going to come in, we're all going to sit down at the table, and I'm going to open up my Bible, I'm going to read what I read in my devotion that morning with the whole family, then I'm going to have them share prayer requests, I'm going to pray over them. I said, that sounds like a great Saturday morning. And he started doing it. 
And we got together several months later. I said, hey, tell me about your Saturdays. He goes, it's been the best thing we've ever done. And a big part of that was just having worship music playing in the house throughout the morning. And it just prepared all of their hearts for that time of family worship. There are so many ways to get the word of God and prayer and worship music into your marriage so you can lead your wife spiritually. Be in her prayer warrior. Be in someone who does disciple her for her sanctification. The last note there in our notes is to love her sacrificially. Love her sacrificially. In verse 30 of this passage, it says, we are members of his body, talking about the body of Christ. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2, right? He's going all the way back to the beginning, which is, by the way, this is something that Jesus does and something Paul does, that when they talk about marriage, they go back to the beginning. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, what what was marriage like? What was God's original blueprint of marriage? Because God created marriage. God created family. It was his idea. Man didn't come up with it. It wasn't like some culture somewhere came up with this idea of marriage. This was in the beginning, the second chapter of the Bible, God creates marriage. He creates family. And in his original blueprint, we have one man, one woman coming together as one flesh for life. And so in Jesus in Matthew 19, when they ask him about divorce, he goes all the way back to the beginning to say, Listen, this is what God intended marriage to be from the beginning before sin. And Paul does the same thing here. But here's what's amazing about this passage. Look what he says. He goes back to Genesis 2. He's talking about marriage. They're going to leave their father and mother, and they're going to hold fast, become one flesh. Then he calls this a mystery. Talking about marriage. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying marriage refers to Christ and church. Marriage is supposed to be this precursor to the gospel. Marriage is supposed to paint a picture of the gospel. One author says that marriage is to be gospel reenactment. What that means is when we are faithful to Ephesians 5, and we're shepherding our wives, and they're delighting in our spiritual leadership, and we're leading them, and we have that sacrificial love, that unconditional, satisfying love for our wives, we're serving them well, then people can look at our marriage and know something about the gospel. They should be able to look at our marriage and say, you know, the the way that your wife submits to your leadership reminds me of the way the church submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ as the head. The way that you sacrificially lead your wife reminds me how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and now leads his bride, the church. The way that you two come together as one flesh and unity reminds me of the unity that we have with Christ when we put our faith in him and he saves us by grace through faith. Our marriage is supposed to be a gospel witness. That means if your lost neighbors knew you well, came to your house, ain't dinner with your family often, that if your marriage is godly, then you already have an open door to sharing the gospel with them. Because when you start sharing the gospel with them, they're going to know everything they've seen about your marriage, and and they're going to connect the dots, and it's going to make sense to them. But if your marriage is worldly, and then you try to tell them about the sacrificial love of Christ, it's not going to be a very good witness. We are to love her sacrificially the way that Christ loved his bride, the church. 
You know, this is the gospel message from the beginning all the way through. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all that exists in six days. And on the sixth day, he created man. He created a male and female. First man, the first woman, he brought them together as one flesh. He created marriage and the first family. And the first family lived in perfect fellowship with God and communion with him without sin. But in Genesis 3, we see that as the serpent comes and tempts them, Eve takes the fruit she's not supposed to eat. She eats it. She gives it to Adam, her husband, who is with her, and he eats the fruit. And so God comes to them, and he punishes them for their sin. But in that same punishment in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3.15, he also gives them a promise that one day offspring would come through this first family, through the seed of the woman, who would crush Satan. And so if we pick that up in Genesis 3.15, we're reading through the Bible, then as we go to Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, we're waiting for the one who's going to come and crush Satan. It tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, they try to cover their nakedness. They try to cover their shame out of fig leaves, but they're unable to cover their shame. And so at the end of Genesis 3, God took the skin of an animal and he covers their shame because we need a sacrifice to cover our shame and our sin. We get to Genesis 4, and we read about Cain and Abel, and we're wondering, are they the ones that are going to crush Satan? And they're not, because Cain crushes Abel, and Abel, of course, doesn't crush Satan. Seth isn't the one we're waiting for. Noah is not the one we're waiting for. We get to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, and God scatters the nations and the languages. And then in Genesis 12, he chooses one man from one of those nations, a man named Abram. And in Genesis 12, 3, God gives another promise that through Abram, one would come who would bless all nations. So we're waiting for the one who's going to come and going to crush Satan, the one who's going to bless all nations. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and God tells Abraham in Genesis 22 to take Isaac and give him as a sacrifice. So Abraham takes Isaac, and they're walking up the mountain, and Isaac looks at his dad. He says, Dad, I see the wood for the sacrifice, for the fire. I see the knife, but where is the lamb? And he says, God will provide the lamb. He, he takes him to the altar and ties him up, and, and, and the angel stops Abraham's hand right before sacrificing his son. And, and he says, look over there in the thicket. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And, and he says, sacrifice him in place of the boy. We have a substitutional sacrifice, and his death means the boy's life. And later on, we see that all this points to Christ. They're waiting for the one that's going to crush Satan, the one who's going to bless all nations, the Lamb of God, that God will provide the substitutional sacrifice that will take our place, and his death will mean our life. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God changed his name to Israel so that all of his family, all the descendants after him are called the Israelites. And Jacob had a son named Joseph, and through Joseph, Israel lands in Egypt, and they're slaves in Egypt for 430 years. But God takes a man named Moses, and he brings them out of slavery through the 10 plagues. And the 10th plague there to Pharaoh in Egypt is the plague of the Passover lamb, where they're to take the blood of the Passover lamb, put it on the doorpost of their door, so that the angel of the Lord will pass over their home and spare the life of the firstborn son knowing that we are now waiting for the Passover lamb that will spill his blood so that our lives will be spared. After God uses Moses to bring them out of Egypt, he uses Joshua to bring them into the promised land where they have a period of judges, but then they ask for a king, and God gives them a king. He gives them Saul, and then he gives them David, a man after God's own heart. And while David is king, God gives another promise that through the line of David, one would come who would be king forever. 
So we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice that's going to cover our shame. We're waiting for the one who's going to bless all nations. We're waiting for the Lamb of God that God will provide. We're waiting for that substitutional sacrifice that will take our place and his death will mean our life. We're waiting for the Passover lamb that will spill his blood so that our lives will be spared. And we're waiting for the one who will be king forever. During the times of the kings, there were also prophets. And there, through the prophets, God gave more promises about the one who would come promising that the one who would come would be born of a virgin, would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be a suffering servant, and that by his stripes, we would be healed. And then Jesus is born. He's born of a virgin. He's born in Bethlehem. After living a perfect, sinless, blameless, spotless life, he willingly gives himself on the cross for our sins. He's the one who comes to crush Satan. He's a sacrifice to cover our shame. He's the one who comes to bless all nations. He's a lamb of God that God provided. He's a substitutional sacrifice that takes our place, and his death means our life. He's a Passover lamb that spills his blood so that our life will be spared. He is the one who comes to be king forever because three days after he was crucified, he rose from the dead, and he lives forever. He's a suffering servant, and by his stripes we are healed. After Jesus rose from the dead, he gave the great commission to his disciples, saying, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all of my commands, and I am with you always to the end of the age. And the disciples obeyed the great commission. They did. They started going out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, making disciples. And as people gave their lives to Christ, they were saved. They were baptized. They started to meet as a church. And and the Bible says that that is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And Paul here in Ephesians 5 says the way that Jesus sacrificed himself for his bride is the way that we as husbands are to sacrificially love our bride and our wives. That's our example, guys. This whole gospel message from Genesis till now, Paul says the mystery is that our marriage is supposed to point to that. If we're going to love her sacrificially, then we have to love her with that kind of gospel love. Listen, Jesus is passionate about his bride sacrificially, unconditionally, servant-hearted, dying for her, loving her, all for her. And that's to be our example, men. Are we that kind of husband? When our wives describe the way we treat them, love them, lead them, serve them that way, sacrificially, gospel-centered marriages. Now listen, this isn't to make us feel bad about how we've been as husbands. This is to hopefully get us excited about the husbands we could be starting today. And for those who are already trying to strive toward this, hopefully we're just throwing more logs on the fire to reignite that passion even more. We can't do it in ourselves, but look around you. You're not by yourself. You got a group of men to hold you accountable to encourage you, to pray for you. You have the Holy Spirit inside you to give you all that you need if we would just make time to go to him for that. Christ is passionate about his bride. Let me tell you one more story about when I was in the jungle. Uh, we, we were working with this one tribe, the Amatica Eddie, but they lived in four or five different villages on one river. 
And so we went to the first village, and we spent time with them, and we learned even some of their dialects. We learned the dialect. We learned the names of the families and became friends with them, shared the gospel. And then we learned of another village further downriver. So we drove a day and a half downriver and got to that village. Then we learned of a third village, Masinawa, about two days downriver. We went there. And so for six months, we'd go back and forth between these three villages, sharing the gospel from the beginning all the way to the end. And in each village, praise God, there were people and families that gave their life to Christ, and they were baptized in the river. They started to meet as a church, and we continued to disciple them, and we were planting these churches in those three villages. And after six months, we heard about a fourth village, Boken and Bari. They said, you know, Bunteri, Caterpillar, they said, you know, there's actually another Amadakati village a little further down the river. I said, I didn't know that. So we prayed about it, prayed about it. We said, you know, I think we need to go to that village, too. So it was me and this one other guy named Chris, a guy from Austin. His nickname, he, he was a white guy. And uh, you know how if you take a baked potato and you peel it, it's white underneath it? Well, they, in Peru, they have yuca. But it's the same thing. If you peel it, it's white. So his nickname in uh, Rakabu language, Tadachipi, which means pilled yuca. So that was him. So caterpillar, pilled yuca, we, we were quite the team. Uh, a far cry from Paul and Silas, but, you know, we were there. And uh, we, were, we were hoping to God try to use us. And so we got in this little 10-foot dugout canoe we had with a pecky-pecky motor. It's basically a prop motor run by like a lawnmower motor or a prop run by a lawnmower. And it's slow. Like if we're going against the current, we would literally have to put a guy in the front of the boat with the uh, oar to kind of paddle to make sure we didn't go backwards. So this boat was slow. You would hear our motor, you know, hours before we actually got there. You could see us coming, you know, for a month before we showed up. And, and so we're coming down to this last village. We'd never been there before. And we pull up, we tie up our boat, and, and we get to the village. And you can picture a big soccer field surrounded by huts. And we get there, and it looked empty. I, I mean, we didn't see a soul. We didn't see anybody. No kids playing, nobody out working in the fields, nothing. And we're looking around, and sometimes entire villages would empty out. They'd go to another village for a big soccer match. They'd go further down river to sell wood or to trade wood. So sometimes it would kind of empty out. And so we're thinking, man, we got here on the wrong day. And then finally, across the field, we saw some young guys. And so we called out to them in their dialect. We said, Osigatewamambi. And they looked at this caterpillar and pilled yucca, and they're like, what is happening today in our village, you know, by dreaming? And, and they start walking across to figure out who we are and what we're doing there in their village. And we, we were name dropping. We're like, oh, we've been to Shantuya. We've been to Baraka. We've been to Bokinabari. And we know this guy and this guy and this guy. And we've been to Masinawa. And we're naming everybody we've ever met from any other village, just hoping they like somebody that we named. And, and it worked. It totally worked. They're like, oh, yeah, I used to live in that village. Oh, yeah, my uncle lives in that village. Oh, I know the guy you just said. That's my cousin. They're like, praise God. And, and they said, okay, we're going to introduce you to the chief. So they take us over to introduce us to the chief. And we're sitting there talking. And slowly, other men from the village start showing up. And a lot of them had their spears and their bows and arrows, so we're thinking maybe they've been out hunting, and now they're coming back, and so they welcomed us. We had a man of peace that said, hey, you can stay in my hut and, and sleep there on the floor in my hut, and we said, praise God, and so for the rest of our two years there, that was part of, you know, kind of where we went on that river, so for the next year and a half, we're going up and down that river, now between four villages, and in that last village there, people gave their life to Christ. They were baptized. They started meeting at the church. They became our brothers and sisters in Christ. We worked with them. We hunted with them. We fished with them. I'm Terrible at hunting, terrible at fishing, just know that. But I went. I, I went with them and tried. Um, and we played soccer. I'm even worse at soccer. And they became like friends and family to us. And then right at the end of our two years there, we're, we're finishing up, coming back to the States, and, and we hear this story from that fourth village. 
from the church. They said, you know, that first day y'all came. Do y'all remember that first day? I said, oh, yeah, we remember that day. They said, well, we actually heard your boat a long time before you got here. And we looked out and we saw y'all like half an hour before we got here. And I'm like, of course, we had the slowest boat in the Amazon. And they said, we saw you guys and we thought y'all might be criminals. And I'm looking at me and I'm looking at my buddy. I'm like, yeah, we do kind of look shady. And we thought y'all were coming to steal our wood or something. So we actually had a, a meeting before you got here. And we voted and decided that when you got here, we were going to ambush you and kill you. And so that when you got here and you thought everything was empty, we were actually hiding behind those huts, behind the trees with our spears and our bows and arrows. And our plan was to ambush you when you got to the middle of the field and to kill you. But then we heard you say you know, words in our dialect. We heard you talk about villages and other people that we knew. And we decided not to kill you. And I'm thinking... Thanks. You know, I mean, what do you, what do you say? Like, if Christ come to church and said, Blair, remember your first day? We had actually had a meeting. We had voted to kill you. But then we got to know your wife and kids. And we said, I will let him live. I mean, what do you say to that? You're like, oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Love this church. And, and so I remember that night after hearing that story, I'm journaling. And I was, you know, at first you're just like, well, praise God. You know, he saved our life. He preserved us. And then the Lord laid something on my heart that I want to share it to you this morning what he showed me was that it wasn't so much that he's saving some boy from Dallas and some boy from Austin. More than that, he was preserving the message that we carried. Because Paul says we are just jars of clay. But we carry this gospel treasure within us. You see, Christ is so passionate about pursuing his bride to the ends of the earth. That if he has to keep a couple of Texas boys alive a little longer, so that this tribe can hear the gospel and give their life to Christ and become part of the bride of Christ, then he'll do it. When you think about your wife, I want you to think about the cross. The extent to which Jesus will go for his bride. And Paul doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't really make it easy on us. He doesn't water it down for us. He says, that's how you are to love your wife, period. He doesn't give any kind of qualification there. He doesn't say, oh, but I know it's going to be hard, so maybe you won't. He just says, this is the word of God, guys. Love your wives as Christ loves his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her. We are called to shepherd our wives in a way that glorifies God and paints a picture of the gospel. Let me pray for us. God, we need you. God, just reading Ephesians 5 can feel so impossible sometimes in our own strength. But we need you, Lord. We want to be faithful. We want to be the men and the husbands you've called us to be. I pray you give us what we need to shepherd our wives in a way that brings you great glory. Amen. Now listen, our last session, we're going to kind of get in more specifics. We'll be talking about children and grandchildren but a lot of things we'll look at in this last session will also apply to leading our wives spiritually. So I'll turn it over to Blair, then we'll get back into that.